Hey everyone, Derek here from Conspirituality. I didn't grow up in a very culinary family, but my Eastern European roots did afford me the ability to cook a pretty good chicken paprikash. It's actually one of the few meals from my upbringing that I was very fond of. And I like to prep all of my food in advance, usually hours before, so that way when I get down to cooking, it's all ready for me. In fact, I used all of the chicken in my last shipment of ButcherBox to cook chicken paprikash. It is definitely a favorite here. ButcherBox really allows you to have everything on hand so that when you are ready to make your meal, you pop out of the freezer, give it a day, and you're ready to go. Right now, ButcherBox is offering Conspirituality listeners your choice of a weeknight meal must-have for free in every order for a whole year. So that's either three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or a pound of steak tips. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free offer and get $20 off. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ever wonder about the psychology behind people joining cults, committing crimes, or adopting extreme beliefs? If so, LA Not So Confidential is the podcast for you. 
On each episode, this true crime and forensic psychology podcast investigates individual cases. Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh use their years of expertise as forensic psychologists to examine the psychological issues that connect with crime and dark decisions. The show is smart, curious, and a little snarky. I recommend listeners check out their episodes on pyromania, also body dysmorphic disorder, toxic sports parents, or erotomania, which is the delusional belief that one is loved by another person. If you love to learn and you want a deeper look into the history and psychology behind famous crimes, check out LA Not So Confidential. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. So check out LA Not So Confidential on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can stay up to date with us on all of our social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you can help support us, do the work that we do, as well as access our Monday bonus episodes. Conspirituality 60, Crypto Dreamin' with David Morris. Are you crypto curious? This past year has shown that an increasing number of people are dreaming of becoming crypto millionaires. But what is blockchain and this strange new digital currency? And even more pertinent to this podcast, how are conspiritualists trying to exploit it, even when they don't understand what it is? Matthew Drills Derek, who worked in blockchain for over two years with two different companies on the basics, before Derek interviews David Morris, the chief insights columnist at Coindesk, who also just happens to have a longtime interest in MLMs and cults. Matthew also reviews the 1996 essay, The Californian Ideology, the famous 1995 study of the bizarre Silicon Valley-fueled fusion of cultural bohemianism and free market utopian rhetoric. In the ticker, I'll be considering the definition of free speech in an age of digital misinformation through the lens of anti-vax champion RFK Jr., Vandana Shiva, and returning conspirituality champion Russell Brand. This is the Conspirituality Ticker, a weekly bullet point rundown on the ongoing pandemic of messianic influencers who spread medical misinformation and sell disaster spirituality. The technology conundrum. Hi, guys. I, I want to start off today congratulating Colin Hoback, the director of HBO documentary series Q Into the Storm. You may have seen he got an Emmy nomination, or the show did, for outstanding picture editing. Yeah, really well deserved. One of the things that stayed with me from the show was the moral crisis we watched Frederick Brennan go through as he candidly reconsidered his stance on free speech absolutism. Now, just to refresh the listener's memory, Brennan is the software developer who started ImageBoard 8chan in 2013, which then became known as the most prominent platform willing to host material associated with anti-Semitism, white nationalism, hate crimes, child pornography, and the lengthy manifestos posted by mass shooters. 
Brennan eventually moved to the Philippines to work in partnership with Jim Watkins and his son, Ron Watkins, who is widely believed, per revelations from that HBO documentary, to have been the person posting to 8chan and then the 8kun reboot as none other than Q. Brennan has since fallen out with the Watkins and wants to end 8kun, saying it causes more misery than anything else. Now, for anyone who watched it, you know that in an ironic turn of events portrayed in the documentary, Brennan had to flee the Philippines based on their incredibly punitive laws against cyber libel. So much for free speech, right? After Jim Watkins filed a complaint against his insulting tweets that called him senile. But I'm revisiting this aspect of the story because... It seems like questions of free speech and what counts as censorship are more and more complicated by digital technology. There's a tie-in here with our cryptocurrency topic today, and wondering whether or not any technology can ever be said to truly be politically neutral. Uh, Matthew will be covering an influential and perhaps prophetic 1996 essay uh, by Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron that they called the Californian ideology, identified as a form of techno-utopianism unique to Silicon Valley. Emerging in the early days of the internet, this kind of digital utopianism has generally posited cyber communication as being an inevitably emancipatory force that would favor the oppressed. And this seemed to be borne out by social media organizing and communication playing a huge role in the Arab Spring, those protest movements across the Middle East between uh, 2010 and 2012. But of course, as we know, that optimism has more recently been soured by the enabling amplifier that social media has turned out to be for Brexit, Trump, COVID denialism, anti-vax propaganda, QAnon, and the capital insurrection. So Part of this, too, that I, I was just looking into is that dreams of a populist rebirth that roots out political corruption via direct democracy on the Internet and thereby renders parliament obsolete are also central to the messaging of Italy's five-star movement party, headed up by former comedian Beppe Grillo. Their successful approach to digital politics resulted in visits to study their methods in 2015, an important year, by figures who would later become central to Brexit and to Trump's rise to power. As we've now seen, cutting out big media middlemen can hand a much-needed megaphone to those with marginalized voices, but it also means that anyone with internet access can become a citizen journalist, start a blog, have a YouTube channel or a podcast, and potentially corrupt cultural discourse by amplifying misinformation, pseudoscience, and conspiracy theories. Of course, it also creates a trail of digital evidence when you do a terrorism under orders from your big loser cult leader ex-president while live streaming and geolocating. But jokes aside, in 2021, my sense is we all have a front row seat to the world being forced to grapple with how game-changing technological advancements interact with culture in intensely disorienting ways that radically reframe central questions about how the relationships between information, media, and democracy take place. Now, Wild West entrepreneurial independence means that when websites that have been party to inciting, fostering, and then cheering on violent terrorism like the Daily Stormer, Gab, and HN have service denied by the tech companies that keep them online, figures like 23-year-old Nick Lim, who owns a company called Vanwa Tech, can come to their rescue. 
a recent Bloomberg article that we'll link in the show notes, identifies Lim as responsible for keeping QAnon online when no one else would. Now, Lim says publicly that he doesn't contract with sites like these due to any affinity for their far-right politics, but because of his principled support of, you guessed it, free speech. His publicity photo shows him wearing a suit while standing in his backyard between his home gym workout equipment and what is identified in the caption as his crypto mining shed. It's quite a combination of elements there in terms of what we've been talking about more recently. This brings me to the July 1st article on RFK Jr.'s anti-vax propaganda machine called Children's Health Defense. It covers anti-GMO activist Vandana Shiva's appearance on Russell Brand's podcast, once again, hi Russell, in which they highlighted Bill Gates's supposedly evil plans for the developing world, which of course are disguised as an attempt to fight climate disaster and lift farmers in developing nations out of poverty. At this moment, I feel like I should yell bingo or something at having found the complete set of collectible conspirituality cards in one convenient place. We got Russell Brand, Bill Gates, RFK Jr., uh, vaccines, GMO, Vandana Shiva, uh, and and terrible plans for the developing world. It's a little bit corkboardy. Um, yeah, maybe you, you might need more, some more string or something. <laughs> We've covered Shiva on the pod before because a section of her 2020 book Oneness versus the One Percent was published as a very widely shared article that placed Bill Gates at the center of a plot to perpetuate lockdowns, dismantle the public education system, create a dystopian world where, and I'm quoting here, children never return to schools, do not have a chance to play, do not have friends, a world without society, without relationships, without love and friendship. She refers in that same piece to an ominous sounding new Microsoft patent, you may remember, for a piece of tech that would allow tracking of individuals biosignals during cryptocurrency mining, a concept we might ask Derek to uh, help clarify for us. The tech, of course, happens to contain 666 in its patent number, a kind of coincidental catnip for conspiritualists. Shiva then links this to what she refers to as Gates' sinister agenda, quoting again, to colonize the minds, bodies, and spirits of our children before they even have the opportunity to understand what freedom and sovereignty look and feel like beginning with the most vulnerable. So we'll link to that piece in the show notes for those interested, um, as well as to Shiva's appearance on Brand's show, which is discussed on RFK's website with regard to the new nonprofit that Gates has started called Gates Ag One that seeks to bring breakthrough scientific technology to smallholder farms whose yields are threatened by the effects of climate change. Now, in this case, to continue the theme, she sees the digital data gathering activities of this kind of project by which it seeks to optimize all aspects of farming as being a kind of data slavery in which those farmers, again, are being mined. And then what's the point? Is or is that data going to be used against them in some way or it's going to be consolidated by big agriculture? Or It's so tough because her, her so much of her uh, political positioning is easy to agree with, right? She's, she's sort mm-hmm. of anti-neocolonialist. She's pro the people. You know, she, she makes a lot of these sorts of cases for, for not uh, enacting a sort of cultural imperialism and, and having uh, people in developing countries turned into uh, serfs for the for for big corporations of course uh, yeah. And, yeah which which is is important uh, but at the same time her lack of understanding of the technology means that 
she seems she she interprets uh, ominous agendas behind things that it's hard to see how they get there. As I'll explain in a little bit, one of the best use cases for blockchain is agriculture and supply Mm. chain management. And what she could be referring to, which is a real problem, is if you are a farmer who has to purchase seeds from Monsanto every year because you're not allowed to use the seeds from the plants and they are tracking you on blockchain, they can tell whether or not you're buying those seeds in your supply chain. So that is a real problem. But her attempt at relating that to the mining of a psychological phenomenon, which is what she's doing in that essay, is problematic. Yeah, so she tends to make that leap quite often into this this more sort of uh, mythopoetic uh, uh, reverie. And in, in this case, she also personalizes it and says, you know, Bill Gates doesn't know anything about farming. That's why he has to mine our local indigenous farmers for their information so he can learn how to do farming properly. It's very much like the wellness influencers who around the turn of the century started talking about getting downloads from God, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. You're taking technological metaphors without really understanding it and then applying it to whatever your brand is. Yeah, and in, a, and in a way, it's, it's not that surprising because here's this woman who obviously is, is quite brilliant who got her PhD in philosophy and, and her dissertation is on quantum physics. So she, she did that move that's, that, we, that we know so well, where they, they, someone tries to extract metaphysical spiritual truths from quantum physics and, and then turn it into this sort of uh, academic pastiche. The conversation features a lot of Russell Brand having to gather himself emotionally. He's on the verge of tears many times because he's so, and I think this is really sincere, he's so spiritually awed by Shiva. I think too, he carries a certain amount of guilt and humility about British colonialism, which is perhaps appropriate, right? I often think Russell is sincere. That's part of the problem. I mean, I really do think he's sincere with a lot of his beliefs. It's just that critical thinking is often lacking, but his sincerity comes across, I think, quite often. I know Matthew will have something to say on that. (laughs) I mean, there's there's a difference. Well, I don't know. I mean, there are degrees of sincerity based upon how much anxiety I feel coming off of a person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's a kind of, there's a kind of sincerity that uh, feels like um, it's, I don't know that it's rich or something like that because it's the person has to feel the person is feeling something and there's empty space and he has to fill the space mm. that can feel, that can feel authentic. It can feel sincere because it's being driven by some sort of um, terror of the silent microphone or something like that. That's so, so uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to parse out people's feelings that way. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I trust that he's not lying if that's what we're talking about, but, but I don't, but I don't trust that he's, that he's, um, expressing something that feels settled. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, my sense, my interpretation is that there, that there is, uh, an actual emotion showing up for him that is impacting his behavior, how, how we, whether or not we can then claim to understand what that emotion really means or what it's really for is, is something else. Right. Yeah. 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 So he's definitely spiritually awed by her. Uh, she holds forth throughout the, the, the section that I watched, uh, inspiringly about the sacredness of nature. 
So you have this juxtaposition between, you know, desacralizing de- uh, technology and, and a return to the earth uh, and a sense of the sacred that comes from uh, ancient tradition. Uh, but again, the extent to which she, she gets the science wrong is really striking. Uh, critics have pointed out, and I'll, I'll link some articles here in the show notes as well, that she not only propagates pseudoscience and conspiracist ideas, but she also has actively and at times successfully campaigned against relief efforts that donated GMO food to areas suffering famine and, and other disasters. So, you know, she seems to be okay with those people starving on the basis of her anti-GMO absolutism while turning around and charging $40,000 reportedly per speaking engagement plus a business class round-trip plane ticket. So we end up here, I think, between the right-wing free speech warriors like Lim and conspiracist anti-vax censorship martyrs like what Brett Weinstein has turned into, and then more left-leaning activists like Shiva and to an extent Brand, who see technology as an extension of colonialism. Questions of how to accurately understand digital ethics seem to only become increasingly thorny and complex. And that's before we even start to try to understand what the hell even is cryptocurrency anyway. That's great, Julian. I wanted to just repeat this quote from Vandana Shiva, so, who I still don't really know that well, but um, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll learn more. But is this from... Her article, uh, she's predicting a, a world where children never return to schools, do not have a chance to play, do not have friends. It is a world without society, without relationships, without love and friendship. Is that from the article? Yeah, I'll tell you the name of it right now. It's called. So she wrote. Uh, so she wrote that out. Yes, so that's she, not like exactly. A, she wrote that out in her book, which I cited, and and the article was really a an excerpt from that book, which is part of the reason why it's it's kind. It has a a weird kind of tangential quality to it. I later found out it was just taken directly out of the book. I'm always. Imp- I mean, we've spoken so often about how people with scientific credentials that they marshal appropriately or not, you know, according to their lanes or their disciplines or not, and how they will break into a kind of scriptural diction that, you know, in in this case, almost has like a a, a Job or or Ecclesiastes kind of feeling to it. It's so stark and absolute. And for a while, like I've thought about moments like this as kind of like the eruption of the person's black and white psychology in some way that I take this psychoanalytic perspective where, you know, does she actually believe that the world is turning into a place where children never return to schools? Like this must be an exaggeration. And if it's not, and if she doesn't catch it in one edit after another, and if no editor says, hey, you know, can you tone that down a little bit? Because it sounds a little bit extreme and it just floats through. It seems to be this instance where this like really uh, powerful uh, projection uh, sneaks through into the person's public discourse where they have this enormous fear about what the world is turning into and they can't help but to turn that into an actual prediction. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's very similar to some of our conspiritualists. Uh, Bauhaus wife comes to mind. Bauhaus wife does it, yeah. Right, who use the, the, the fear... The, the sort of science fiction fantasy that, that vaccines are going to turn us all into AI. And that's what they're really for. There's really this other like bizarre agenda of turning us into machines. I mean, I think with, with Shiva, the, um, 
the second aspect of, of how she does this comes into play because I think that when a person like that or Zach Bush slides into a kind of scriptural language, it's so entirely divorced from the science that they are ostensibly concerned about and talking about. I almost feel like it has this anchoring function for the readership or the listenership. It's like science is complicated. Uh, the worldview and the connections and the conspiracies that I am putting together for you are extremely difficult to understand. But I'm going to give you a little mental break here. And with a couple of sentences, I'm going to give you like a almost a refrain of horrible but simple things that you can understand that will transport you back into, mm -hmm. uh, I don't familiar know, listening territory. to the, right, the familiar territory of listening to the Old Testament or, yeah. or, yeah. or hearing or hearing poetry or something like that. And so if, I'm just really interested by that. It's like, you know, on one hand, obviously this, she's not saying something that is reasonable. Like she's, she's taking something that she's afraid of and she's projecting it and amplifying it to some absurd degree. But on the other hand, I think that it functions for the audience as a kind of set point where people can come back to this point in her speech or in the article and say, oh, she's speaking to things that I can understand, which is that my children need to play. And I just find that really interesting. Yeah. And even more than that, this, it's the what you're what you're kind of identifying and as, as a mythopoetic, like an Old Testament sort of. Uh, tone is that it's 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 more highly charged. It's richer in in like the emotional and, and imaginal response that it evokes. So for for Christiane Northrup, a really good example is Luciferase, right? That she found Absolutely. out there's, there's right. Luciferase, and and because it has that name, what that that must mean something awful. In this case, the the fact that the patent has six six six. Even though she doesn't directly reference that, everyone who talks about this patent includes the the patent number because again, it evokes some sense of like, see, it's true. Uh, she's also well known for taking, and of course, this, of course, you know, no no fan of Monsanto, not shilling for Monsanto ever here, but she takes the the proposed um, GURT, uh, uh, what was it called, um, termination genetics, what whatever that proposed technology was for stopping the seeds from continuing to propagate and proposes that that's going to lead to a complete global apocalypse because it will eventually become uh, uh, contagious enough that it will destroy all life on the planet. It will stop all reproduction of all plants and eventually all animals, and that's how it's going to go. So yeah, that pivot on a, a scary, hard-to-understand technological concept into something that has... Uh, mythopoetic kind of ominous overtones is, is very prevalent. Right. Well, and that particular technology, I think, is is terrifying when it's laid out in layman's terms, and she's got a lot to grab onto there. And um, it's just very interesting to see somebody or people again and again default to, okay, well, how can I reduce this into a paranoid soundbite? And uh, and, and make that the centerpiece of the rest of the sort of charismatic dream that I'm, I'm weaving for the public. Okay, Derek, um, I have some questions for you. About, I know you do. <laughs> about, about blockchain. I'm really hoping that you can help me understand this thing that 
makes me feel very intimidated. Let me start by just saying that I have worked in technology now for five or six years with a number of companies. Right now I'm with Centered, which is software, but before that I was with blockchain. But I've always worked on the content and marketing side. So I do have some understanding because I work directly with engineers over a number of years. So this I am giving a high-level 101 overview of these topics. Whereas when you hear me talk to David Morris, who has a much more granular understanding, you're going to hear a little bit more about the specifics. So I, okay. I am going to, so I am taking a, a, a 35,000 foot approach. So if there are people who are technically uh, more efficient than I am, uh, I apologize for any broad strokes. I think that's, I think that's going to be good enough as an opener. And that's a great disclaimer. And I think that the, I think blockchain is so mysterious that the 35,000 foot view is really, really useful. So let's start with okay so um what are the basic building blocks of blockchain there's a block there's a chain what what the fuck are these things yeah i don't know (laughs) (laughs) all right see you next week so i i want to point this out because i think it's fascinating the and both of you as writers i think will appreciate this the very first evidence of writing that we have is an accounting ledger The story goes, and it relates back to agriculture here, that as city-states were starting to form and people were actually trading with people they didn't know, they needed to both make sure that the trades were considered fair and that they would track their livestock or their whatever they were producing. So we are talking about a point in history when currency was how many goats you owned or how many avocados you produced. And writing became a way of keeping track. So poetry and mythology grew out of accounting, which I personally find fascinating (laughs) because we're right back to that story with blockchain. So when people think of this very overwhelming thing that they don't understand, a block is simply where new data is entered, how many goats I have, and how many avocados you have. And the chain is the series of blocks linked together. So effectively, a blockchain is just a database. Now, spreadsheets, we probably all use spreadsheets as conspirituality as a business. We use spreadsheets for certain things to track certain things. And a database is just an organizational scaled spreadsheet. It's just a very big spreadsheet. Now, I think what people get a little confused by is this tethering of cryptocurrency, which we'll get to in other in other comments here. But uh, let me just say that uh, also bring up the term a node because that's very big in blockchain. And a node is uh, has a full record of the data that has been stored on blockchain since its inception. So as soon as you enter a block, that's the source of truth. That's where, for example, non-fungible tokens or NFTs are very big right now. You're just putting your artwork on that first inception block and saying, this is the original and now I'm giving it to you. And that's where the record starts. Okay, so... You, we already have the, the sort of metaphor of the deposit. Uh, the block is something that we've put data into. When I think of my Gmail account, uh, when I think about my online banking, I kind of think of a filing cabinet in space where uh, my data 
is sort of mutually it can flow to me it it can flow to me but i can put data into that filing cabinet um but that's not blockchain in the sense that it that's a that's my private communication of data into a filing cabinet that nobody else can access except myself and the company that I trust. But with blockchain, uh, the process of that data sharing ends up being open in some way or verifiable by other people? Well, so first off, there are public blockchains, which is what most people are accustomed to with Bitcoin and Ethereum, the two biggest. But there are also private blockchains. The three oh. of us could spin the three of us could spin up a blockchain and control it completely for our data organization. So but let's not get too into that because okay. that'll be too down that rabbit hole. So an open ledger just means it's publicly available. It's a defining feature of Bitcoin and why it was started. Uh, so the activity you're talking about the transactions or storage of data happens inside of the blocks, as I said. So the transaction process is this. A transaction is entered, and then it's transmitted to a network of peer-to-peer computers around the world. The network for Bitcoin, the network solves complex mathematical equations to validate the transaction. And then once the transaction is confirmed, those transactions are clustered together and the blocks are then chained together, and then the transaction is consider- is complete. So I know that was a lot, so l- let me break it down a little bit more. When you go to your online bank, you are entering your PIN number to access your account. And you're right, ideally only you and the organization has access to that. The problem with this form of security is that it is very easy to hack if you only have one point of entry. And so that's why when you see things like LinkedIn was hacked and 85 million people had their identities stolen, it's because there's only that one point of entry that people were able to. Now, banks have, I mean, it, they're, hopefully their security protocols are more intense than that. And they, you know, they spend a lot of money. Cybersecurity is one of the most lucrative industries in the world. So hold on a second, Derek. When, when you say one point of entry, you mean one one like binary way of of validating your identity as opposed to something that would be more distributed. Yes, so I'll be a little more clear on that because that's for your personal identity. So if you like if someone gets a hold of your password, they can access your account. They can't exact they can't access the entire bank's account. So bank I mean banking security is more complex than that one point of entry, but for but but here's well first off, I'm going to get back to security, but I think this is important. The reason that blockchain hasn't scaled yet is because because of those points of verification on the peer-to-peer networks around the world. So for example, Ethereum takes 12 transactions, meaning 12 different people have to say, this is a valid transaction, and each one takes about 15 seconds. So you talk about three minutes to verify a transaction. So if you're online and you're buying something with Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's not what we're accustomed to with credit cards where the transaction is instantaneous. But it's interesting because credit card payments actually take 24 to 48 hours to validate. 
the thing is that the credit card companies are so big that they basically say, we trust you for this, so we're just going to cover it instantly. But the actual transaction, if you look at your bank, why it takes a few days is the process is actually, in reality, much slower. It's just that blockchain cryptocurrency has not been adapted widely yet or adopted widely yet so that uh, people don't have the same level of trust in it at this point. So in normal transactions, a merchant will absorb the cost of the transaction, while in crypto, it's the sender that absorbs the cost. Now, in theory, in Ethereum, this is called gas. And this is why, as you'll hear in a little bit when David says that you can't untether cryptocurrency and blockchain, because you need something, an incentive program for it to actually run. And I know we have questions on that, so I'll get to that. That has to do with the nodes and how the networks are distributed and the functions of each of those points of distribution. Yeah, so for me to, for me to spin up a node I, I'm not going to spend all that money on com- computational power and then not get money in return. So that's okay. the incentivization. Yeah. Okay, so let's back up because because I think, let me see, um, in my list of questions here, maybe this is the next one that makes sense. Okay, so I understand that this is, that, that blockchain is, is the larger category, the technological sort of landscape in which something like Bitcoin unfolds and that, and that each of those products or, or software systems, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a number of others that we'll talk about later, uh, that they all use blockchain in a particular way. Um, but the general uh, idea is that within a blockchain system, each computer has the potential of monetizing the process or verifying or tracking the ledger. Um, Now, is that automatic? Uh, Do users sign up for that? Um, How does that work? So there's right now there's two different ways, which is uh, proof of work and proof of stake. And so blockchain famously is proof of work, which is very energy intensive. So a miner is really, it's just a metaphor, talking about metaphors before. It's just someone who has the computational power that will solve these complex mathematical problems to verify the transaction. Now, you can... You can verify transactions on Bitcoin with as something as small as what's called a Raspberry Pi, which fits in your pocket. Um, one co- one company that I was working with uh, was trying to get it uh, Tesla, so that Teslas, when they were charging, were actually mining cryptocurrency through solar energy, which is a great idea. So your car can pay for itself through cryptocurrency. And then there's proof of stake, where the creator of the block is chosen by an algorithm based on the user's stake. And just briefly, so I have a bunch of Ethereum. If I were staking, if I were stake, if if that cryptocurrency would allow me to stake, I put up a small amount of money in order to solve the block, to solve the problem, or I'm sorry, to get chosen by that algorithm to then get rewarded with more, hopefully, cryptocurrency. And part of the issue right now is because it's a global cryptocurrency, global currency, the worth is always variable. And so some days an Ethereum transaction will cost me nothing. And some days the very same transaction could cost me $50 in fiat. And so that's part of the problem of why it hasn't been worked out yet. You just used the word fiat, and what you're referring to is standard issue government-backed currencies that are used around the world. But hold on, hold on, Matthew, because because you, it's convenient, Derek, that you that you mentioned mining, and you know I, I brought up the uh, the the 
thing that Vandana Shiva had talked about with regard to this Microsoft patent uh, and and biotracking. So it's, it's, it's a patent for a device that hasn't been made yet, but that apparently will track biosignals in a certain way of people who are mining cryptocurrency. What does that mean? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the mining is, again, you're solving, you have some sort of computational power that will solve complex yes. equations. Yes. But what you're really asking is how is it tracked? Yeah. Because that's what you're, the issue is the tracking. So on a public blockchain, in order to partake on that blockchain, you will get an address. Now, Bitcoin addresses range from 26 to 35 alphanumeric characters. So we can right now go to a blockchain explorer like blockchain.com. We can log on, we can just look at it, and you will see every transaction happening on that blockchain as it's happening. But all you're seeing are strings of numbers of 26 to 35 characters that is a person or an organization behind it. It doesn't reveal your identity. You have to know whose uh, string of characters that is in order to identify them. Now, there are ways if, if you like when one of the blockchains I worked for, we would monitor transactions on the chain and you can kind of tell over time by certain behaviors who the people actually were. And then you could actually write down the numbers if you wanted. But for the most part, part of the reason that it's considered shady is even though it's done in public, when when companies in the US are sending crypto to company to Russian hackers to pay off to get their data back you can see their blockchain number but yeah. you don't know who's behind that yeah. yeah so that's so so she's she's being a little hyperbolic with that uh you you would have to know who everyone's numbers are and the th- and you can also spin up many addresses so if you open many different wallets every wallet is associated with an address so there are many ways of being undetectable if you're using cryptocurrency yeah it it, it sounds like from from every front and from looking at the patent it was a while ago that I looked at it when the article first came out it sounds like it's some kind of piece of wearable technology that enables it sounded to me like someone who was earning money Doing cryptocurrency mining uh, would their their act. It's it's a way of sort of verifying the fact that they're on the job somehow by by tracking their biosignals is what it's what it sounds like. I don't know how to make head or tail of that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was giving you a bigger explanation yeah. of what mining was for yeah. that in terms of that particular. So there, I've seen potential use cases where, for example, I use Strava when I cycle and it's tracking my performance. I just got a heart rate monitor. So that tracks that I can choose to make that public or not. So it's, it, you're, all you're really talking about in that situation is them wearing some sort of wearable technology. The only difference is it's powered through blockchain instead of a lot of stuff that's being built on blockchain can be built on traditional infrastructures. There's just a certain sexiness by saying it's built on blockchain and it really doesn't actually have to be. It's actually more cost intensive to do it that way. So in that situation, that's more fear mongering than anything else. But the principle behind the entire thing is ostensibly decentralization because if the tracking and administration of all of the transactions for whatever the software is, is distributed uh, amongst 
peer-to-peer computer networks, uh, no single person is in charge. Nobody can make, ostensibly nobody can manipulate things. But I understand that as the computational issues have gotten more and more complex, and this contributes to the, the energy intensiveness of this process, that more and more hardware is needed. Like I'm sitting here with a plain old Mac desktop, and it's unlikely that I would be using my computer to contribute to any kind of Bitcoin jamboree, right? You so could. You could. You just make very small amount of money. Excellent. So that's, and I'd also <laughs> blow out the computer because it would be running all the time, Right. No, no, not at all. I mean, you okay. can, it depends on how much you, it depends on what other programs are running while you're right. running. Okay. But my, my understanding is that the computation is so um, uh, intensive. And I want to ask you about the equations too. Like, are they random? Is it kind of a game that these computers are playing? Like, what the, like, um, don't ask me math because I won't be able to okay, answer that, right. that part of the question. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, but like, my understanding is that, that uh, it, it's not, as decentralized as as it appears because the uh, hardware requirements and the energy requirements for doing the major portions of the mining, especially if we're talking about currency, that's actually super expensive. And that's why dude, uh, Mr. Lim in, in, you know, Washington state or wherever he is, mm-hmm. has, has, a shed. A shed, has a shed full of data mining that he has to probably keep in the shed so that it doesn't burn his house down. Um, so am I, am, I, am I right about that, um, Derek? Yes, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to answer your question about uh, manipulating the ledger because they're related, just okay. so you know. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, all, peop- I mean, all those sheds are holding are computers. They're just, that's it. So there's, there's some, again, like fear, you know, scariness of a shed or a warehouse full. They're just a lot of computers because you want as much computational power as possible to be, to be able to solve the equations as quickly as possible. So if you think about those photos from the 1950s, when computers were first starting being built, how my father was a computer operator in the sixties. So he, you know, he would be in a room Uh of computers Uh that were much taller than him walking around. And so it's, it's just, they're building up this immense amount of power to be able to solve the problems as quickly as possible. Now, to, with with that, there are companies that have sprung up to build these sheds or warehouses to try to maximize computational power in order to make as much money as possible by mining cryptocurrency. You are correct that the algorithm, the equations get more complex because there is a limited number of all cryptocurrencies. So as you mine more, they get harder. That's a feature that was built into this piece of technology. Um, but there was one thing you said that was a little off is that there is something, <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> Come on, there is something, right. there is something called a 51% attack and it has happened. It's unlikely it'll happen again, but it has happened a couple of times. And so this is when a miner or a group of miners are able to control more than 50% of the network's computing power. And so what happens is those miners then block transactions and they can even double spend the coins, which is a feature of the security protocol uh, that you're not supposed to be able to do. But they, one thing they can't do is they can't 
rewrite the existing ledger, but they can start to manipulate the ledger moving forward. Um, there's also something known as a 34% attack where you have 34%, but that's very hard to pull off. Um, so with the 51% attacks, there have been two on Ethereum and one on Bitcoin Gold, and that one uh, people were able to steal over $18 million. But again, if you think about, remember, Bitcoin right now is worth more than Goldman Sachs. It's worth more than Bank of America. I mean, it's 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 one of the most lucrative uh, valuations on the world. And you would have to own half of that to be able to control the rest of it, which doesn't make any sense at this point. Because if you already own that much, you would have to spend that much to get less back. So it's so a fifty-one percent attack would have been more possible a few years ago when it was tried. And as I said, a few succeeded. But at this point, so many players are in the game. You would have to get all of them to come together to do an attack like this. And then you're only mining what is actually a finite resource at this time. So it's not worth anyone's interest. So my sense is that we, we might we might be losing uh, listeners in droves the, the deeper we go into all of this on these different tangents because it, it, because it is confusing and it is abstract. So I just wanted to add for whatever it's worth, if, if I was listening, um, maybe I would say, okay, so I'm getting a sense that as I try to understand blockchain and cryptocurrency, that this is a way of trying to decentralize the way transactions are verified uh, through through complex networks of of different computers that takes it out of the hands of the financial of of a financial establishment as the middleman, right? And that mining is participating in that process by making your computing power part of how those chains of verified transactions are built, so as to achieve facilitate that goal. facilitate yeah. the entire project. Is that is that yeah, correct? So Am I correctly so, understanding? So, yeah. yeah? Yeah, there's there's two parts of that. And the first one is that uh, this was dreamed up by anarchists who wanted to take down financial institutions who they saw as manipulating world governments. That is where this is born out of. Uh, of course, uh, Satoshi is the creator of Bitcoin and no one knows who that is. And many people, including Peter Thiel, have claimed to be him, but there's no way it was Peter Thiel because he's a douchebag who just wants attention. It's Ron but there Watkins. are other people... There, there are other people. So Nick Sabo in 1998 created BitGold, uh, which his work got into Satoshi's white paper. So some people have speculated it was him. There's Wee Day, a computer engineer who talked about B-Money in 1998. He was also referenced. Uh, we can go back further. David Chalm in 1982 wrote a dissertation on what became blockchain protocols. And as early as 1990, he founded something called DigiCash. So people have been thinking about uh, Stuart Brand, famously, of Whole Earth, was very early into this world as well. Whole Earth Catalog in the early 70s, of course, being the hippie, you know, apex of hippie culture, he was very early in digital, uh, in digital technologies and currencies. So, um, so the idea was born out of giving power to people in controlling their resources. And I want to bring up some use cases, but let's keep going with the questions and I'll end with that. Well, no, that's good because my, my, my follow-up was if you're not an anarchist, you know, if you're not on, on that radical extreme in terms of why you think it's a good idea, why is it a good idea? 
From my perspective, there's there's a few reasons. You know, Walmart is has done a great use case of of their agricultural supply chain on blockchain. Blockchain is just a very secure and very reliable way of tracking information. So I know, and as David says, you know, you can't untether crypto from blockchain. But I don't talk much about cryptocurrency because the the technology itself is blockchain. And so if you are if there is an E. coli outbreak somewhere and you want to be able to, to track where that spinach came from. Right now, our supply chains are, are shit. Like we, we're always. If you've noticed, when there's an outbreak of salmonella or any of these, that it takes them months to identify what farm it came from uh, at times, or at least weeks. But if you have a, a blockchain verified, you can scan that and immediately go back to trace the origins. You know, um, I've I've had friends who worked for Whole Foods and the the amount of connections it takes to get a product into Whole Foods is not like going there and saying, hey, sell my product. There's a lot of middlemen that come between the source, the agriculture, and the final product. Blockchain helps to helps streamline all of that. So, and that supply lane, that, that that supply chain is complex enough that what you're saying is that the retailer at the end of the day actually doesn't know where the thing came from on the shelf, like where that romaine actually is from. Absolutely. And if you look at the health and beauty industry, like there there are no guidelines. Like I can spin up something in my kitchen and sell it at Whole Foods right now, and without actually revealing where I'm getting the products from. That's, and so, so. <laughs> and so, blockchain used universally by uh, the agricultural industry would ostensibly allow for instant tracking of all leaves of romaine lettuce. Yeah, every bundle you can you can mark every bundle, and then through every step. So mm. don't don't just think of even the lettuce. Think of like a pesto. So if right. if you have an olive grower and a and a dairy farm, and then the spinach farm where it's sourced from there. All of those steps, if they were if they were tracking where the olives were, you know, uh, harvested and then made into oil and the spinach and the cheese, if you're tracking all of that and then you put all, you know, every step of the way you're required to verify where it's coming from, then you can actually, when you get the final product, you know the farms where everything came from. Okay, so that's a vision of something that's hyper orderly and transparent and, um, you know, I would say open source is the language that I guess I would use for it. But, you know, a major selling point in many of the blockchain ideas and technologies, especially with concerns, uh, currency, um, is uh, not only the elimination of the middleman with this verification of peer to peer, uh, you know, processing, but also uh, a level of, um, you know, the, the, the possibility of, of secrecy uh, or dodging, like how is, how is cryptocurrency, for example, not a machine for avoiding uh, governmental oversight and, and taxation and things like that. Well, it is, and and so let's let's bring up what I think is a positive use case, and then let's bring up what you're referencing here. So, a positive use case, and one of the very original ideas when cryptocurrency was being dreamed up was to deal with climate change. And so, if you are, and uh, actually, Julian, you brought up the Philippines earlier with the Watkins. Uh, I have some family members who are Filipino and through marriage and. In order for their families to travel outside of the Philippines, they have to have at least $10,000 in the bank, in the state-run bank. 
And when they leave, if they are gone past their visa or how long they say they're going to bond, the government freezes their assets. And this is not just the Philippines. This is in many countries. So say, say you are in an area, let's take India, for example, where, you know, climate change is going to create more and more monsoons and flooding. And say that you're, I don't know the banking situation in India. There are a lot of unbanked in India, though I know that. And say you have your resources either in a controlled organization or you just have your money in your mattress, whatever that is, when some when a catastrophic event comes and you have to run out of there and you flee the country because of a crisis or as happened with the Arabs uprising, um, the state can say, you don't have your money anymore, so what are you going to do? Or you can actually lose your physical money. So the good use case of blockchain is that as long as you have your keys, your passcodes basically, then you can access it as long as you have an internet connection. That's it. That's all you need is a mobile phone, and internet connection. You can have your money anywhere. So that's the positive use case. But as with anything in life, there is manipulation of that. And so it leads to what we're seeing with hackers, uh, where they can uh, freeze people's, uh, capture people's data, freeze them out of their computers, and then say, pay me in this because you can see my public key, but you know what? You don't know who I am. So I'm going to take that money. And and that's how you get a lot of trading on the dark web of, of slavery, of people, of sex, uh, of all of that. So it's like any technology we've ever created. There are good uses and bad uses, but there's they're not inherent in either. And I know you'll discuss like how some technologies are born out of malicious ideas, but there there are both in terms of blockchain. Okay, so now do cryptocurrency fans fantasize about regulated currencies just withering away? <laughs> like, is this an idea in the culture that Bitcoin? could just replace the US dollar and everything would be better? You know, I mean, we've talked before and all of us know something of the history of yoga. What happens when you bring Indian ideas into neoliberal capitalist America? <laughs> they get translated through a lens that you can't quite grok the initial ideas because you aren't born of that culture. And I very much attribute the same thing with this. You can dream of... Bank of America shutting down and then everyone having money, but that's just a, that's just a juvenile fantasy. So if it was, if it was born out of these anarchist dreams, you know, tear it all down, but what do you replace it with? Satoshi actually said, well, this is what you replace it with. Uh, so I'm sure there are some people who have those fantasies, Matthew, but um, you do need to replace. And it's important to point out that fiat is the evolution, uh, a constantly evolving form of currency. Uh, again, if we go back, uh, and even still now, when it was the original, one of the founding ideas of Burning Man, like 15 years ago when I was there, you're, you're serving up chai and I have a new music CD. So here, let's trade. Like that was very much what currency was for a long time. It's just like, I have this, you have this. So fiat itself is an idea. It's one that has worked on a lot of levels, 
but we also know the problems with neoliberalism and capitalism. And, and so we, we have run smack into what those problems have caused with our space billionaires right now. And we're either going to continue along that route, creating more bigger economic rifts, or we're going to replace those systems. Okay, so so I think that leads to the political questions because you you have referenced uh, blockchain coming out of an anarchistic perspective, and I think there are some other points of view that that the people that I'll refer to in a bit uh, bring to that. But would you say in general that blockchain has a political bias? Does the tech itself push people in conversations in a particular direction? I think in a Again, to use the term neoliberal capital society, yes, I think it does because look how look how crypto cryptocurrency at root is me saying I have this much to be able to power this much data on the blockchain. But how does that translate in terms of how people um, are treating cryptocurrency? Oh, it's another stock market, but the gains are so much quicker and bigger. Right, and that that is not how it was initially intended. But when you when you put it, it also like eliminate. Yeah, it also like discredits it as a form of money because it has no storage value, uh, and there's nothing. There's it. I mean, it's funny because it's a. I mean, I'll get to this in a bit, but it's like it's a it's a currency that. So far, people can use in exchanges, but they can't really use it to store value, and they can't really use it to be assured that you know the thing that they bought for one bitcoin in January is going to be worth one bitcoin in 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 you know February. Most famously, the first bitcoin transaction was a pizza, and it was something like eight bitcoins. So someone paid in today's right. value three four hundred thousand dollars for a pizza, <laughs> but back then <laughs> right. when it was ten dollars, then it, it made sense. <laughs> Yeah, and I, th- I think in, in a lot of people's minds, uh, especially right now, the different cryptocurrencies that have been in the news are are, are linked to the uh, the GameStop and the and the AMC like stock stuff, and then that's also linked to this idea that there are these groups of people on message boards uh, like Aitkun and like like uh, Reddit who are staging these big events where they where they use the distributive decentralized power of the internet to attack. Uh, est- established institutional sort of ways of maintaining balance, and and reveal that the whole thing is actually incredibly vulnerable and and uh, you know provisional. And there's something there too about about like I think what one of the things that's disorienting for most of us is that when you start thinking about this stuff, you have to then confront that all currency is this symbolic game that we play and buy into and, and take for granted. And when you peel that back and go, oh, hold on a second, what what is money? Yeah, and I think the zoom out question too is the what is money according to central banking and, and, and government-issued currencies is a series of highly complex social agreements that are regulated through several institutions. And it seems that things like Bitcoin want to sweep all of that away and propose a kind of fixed value upon something that, uh, and, and, and an eternal value on something that, uh, um, that that have that has no social contract around it. The social contract is kind of replaced with uh, the technology of verification. There's a great 
Jay-Z line that I, I'm not going to get exactly right, but where he says that basically all you fools holding money up to your ear on Instagram, uh, we don't call that cash over here. Because even though we have this idea where people like to hold up big piles of cash, that's not actually wealth. Wealth is real estate. It's, it's owning things. And we have a very distorted view of of what wealth actually entails and where wealth is acquired. Uh, people who have a lot of money actually have a lot of things and they, they have stakes in things or they have stocks or whatever that is. They don't necessarily have a lot of cash on hand. Uh, so I, 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 it's, it's very hard to even talk about some of these topics sometimes in a culture that gets very caught up in the idea of just cash all the time because that's not actually accruing wealth. Well, maybe this is the last question then, which is, is there anything about the technology of blockchain or the phenomena of cryptocurrency that you think uh, either challenges or could challenge the basic mechanics of capitalism, like the extraction of surplus labor value? One of the best use cases is there are companies, one of the companies we were working with in Africa was doing some sort of solar mining project where it was specifically for the unbanked because Africa happens to be, I believe, the biggest place in the world with unbanked people. And because you're, you're you know, in some areas, you're talking about dozens of miles people have to travel to get to a bank, but they have mobile phones. And online banking, that requires the institution to go and find those people, and which doesn't really make sense for them. So uh, if, if, you, if you take that idea where you do have a true, I have control over my finances, including the transaction fees, including where I travel in the world and how I use it. Uh, that is a challenge to what we currently have. And again, I know in America, we, you know, we have a different setup so that most people, wherever you travel, your visa card is going to work. But for a lot of the world's population, that's not how it works. And as capitalism tries to spread, or we try to spread capitalism more and more around the world, you know, there's a reason why people, you know, we talk here about pushing back against autocracy and communism, but there are places in the world that push back against capitalism with equal fervor. And there are reasons for that. And that is the, not the state control, but that these giant corporations are controlling what I have, what I do with my resources. And, and so, yes, uh, there, there are definite use cases that, that can play out and actually help people, but it's like anything else, it's going to be a real challenge. I think this is where we have our blockchain commercial break. <laughs> uh, maybe a little, maybe a little tune, maybe a little tune. Well, uh, Derek is going to encourage people to to invest in a in a once in a lifetime opportunity yeah, yeah. to become a millionaire overnight. <laughs> yeah, con- conspiratorially pod coin, conspirituality pod coin. Um, Use my link at greenmedinfo slash. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is what I was going to bring up is that I've definitely noticed that crypto tags have intersected with the social content of our influencers. Uh, But I often feel like, and maybe this is because I dissociate when I see it, (laughs) but it almost feels like a side gig for a lot of them. And often it's shielded from the other content themes they have. Like, um, you know, I'll see somebody that 
Josh Goldstein retweets another like raw meat eating guy who thinks the earth is flat. He'll have like a hashtag for some, I think it's hex or something like that. Some cryptocurrency in his, in his Twitter bio. Um, but it, the way he talks about it, it, it obviously is directed at some in crowd. Like people are there for the raw meat and he's kind of putting the hashtag for the crypto onto the side. And I don't know, maybe they have a separate conversation about that, but I've seen it in a lot of instances. They all blur together. Um, and it, it, yeah, so I, I have noticed it, but it's been hard for me to follow and concentrate on. But I do know that Sayer G, for example, is definitely a crypto advocate. And he might be sidelining as a crypto guru. There's a workshop presentation that he's collaborating on with, with some crypto guy. Uh, and he makes this on brand by connecting it to his fear that, or his proposed fear that centralized computing, uh, the centralized computing that controls Facebook ostensibly will deplatform him completely. And so he's also pitching blockchain projects like the video platform that's called Odyssey. Now, I wanted to ask you about this, Derek, because if you put a video, like if you took YouTube and suddenly, you know, plonked it onto blockchain and decentralized it, would I be right in assuming that the storage requirements of something like that would be way bigger than for any of the use cases that we're talking about, like currency? And wouldn't that be even more energy intensive? Like how does a video streaming service replicate the whole ledger of all of its videos so that everybody's channel is available to everybody all the time? When I was working on a music streaming service powered by blockchain at that time, about three years ago, it would cost you about a hundred dollars to stream a song. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that said video, even my current job, because we have a video component by far the most expensive aspect of the application that we're creating goes to video storage. It is extremely expensive. And that's why I always kind of laugh a little bit when I see these influencers, making these holistic back to the earth, uh, you know, climate change long videos. And I'm like, you don't realize even at the cheaper rates that our storage now costs, they're still creating a heavy load on the internet by posting those hour long talks. I didn't even think about that, that like if you, if you had a really great sort of eco activist, uh, content stream, if you were doing it by video, you're like frying us all. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's why when I see them, huh. I mean, look, we're using these mediums too. And, 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 and the cost isn't nearly what it is in blockchain, but at the same time, at least understand what you're saying and the technology platform <laughs> you're using. <laughs> okay. Well, Sarah's also. It. Right. Sayer is also boosting uh, a, some sort of doppelganger internet called Quartal, uh, actually spelled with a Q, which I find kind of suspicious. Uh, it's weird. Everything to me. is connected. I know. It's weird that this that that a blockchain internet would imply replicating the internet on everyone's device or within everybody, like making the entire internet accessible to everybody ad infinitum. Like I don't, it's like a, I don't know, strange it's a parallel mirror universe world. thing. Yeah. Maybe that's what the point is, is that you walk into a house of mirrors with Sayer and you don't know whether you're, you or him anymore. Like maybe that's it. 
But like, does that make sense, Derek? Is is did you look at Quartal? I think I put it into Slack. No, no, I didn't have time. I was preparing all the other notes. <laughs> you, and, and even you, when I, you when glazed I, over, not even this you universe. Got, oh, totally. even you glazed over. Holy totally. shit! I mean, I and, and you know, just just reading off of what you said, you know, there there's one idea that in North Korea they don't have access to any internet or other, you know countries can turn off certain parts of the internet at will, but I don't think he's being that benevolent. (laughs) So this sounds much more like something metaphysical that I don't even want to get into. Right. Well, you know, I I always had also the impression as I'm getting this in, in drips and drabs that crypto seems to lean right, but I didn't really have any evidence for that until, you know, uh, we we thought up this episode and you got in touch with David, did that great interview. Uh, and then I looked around and I found a great book by uh, David Columbia, which is called The Politics of Bitcoin Software's Right-Wing Extremism. And his main point, uh, which he gives like lots of evidence for, uh, he's a literary theorist by training, I think, like an English prof, uh, but he got into analyzing uh, technology. But he basically says that crypto boosters, without knowing it, perhaps, they end up bullhorning far-right economic views, including conspiracy theories about things like centralized banking and who's running it. And he says that this is so regular in practice that whenever the social or philosophical implications of something like Bitcoin are mentioned, even in mainstream sources, these, these ideas are just taken as read. And so I'll just quote from him. He says, in the Bitcoin literature, as in the central bank conspiracy writings, we read that the Fed is a private bank that hides its real purpose, that it steals money from some private citizens and puts it in the hands of the elites that control the Fed, uh, that the Fed itself is covertly run by a shadowy group of elites, often made up of Jews and members of English banking families, such as the Rothschild. So, I mean, this all sounds pretty familiar to us. And it seems like the crypto answer to it all, you know, you know, drain the swamp, uh, you know, go peer to peer, it, it, it harmonizes with a vision that we're familiar with. Uh, he also, Columbia also pinpoints these key features of crypto ideology. Um, so I've already referenced that, you know, central banks are run by bad people. Uh, secondly, inflation and deflation are the manipulations of central banks instead of complex responses to uh, an infinite number of factors, supply, demand, you know, weather patterns, uh, you know, population movement, whatever. Um, thirdly, the idea that computer-based expertise trumps that of all other forms of expertise. Uh, and then lastly, the very general feeling that uh, government is inherently evil. Um, And he also hints at a kind of systemic deception, not intentional necessarily, but this way in which the technological discourse permits boosters to use right-wing talking points in the name of freedom. Um, And he owes a big debt here to this essay that, Julian, you referenced in the introduction by Barbrook and Cameron, um, which was amazing for me to come across because it put a lot of things together for me. It's called The Californian Ideology, uh, published in 1995. And they do remark, or they track actually sociologically, uh, this weird conjuncture conjunction between San Francisco hippies uh, who held progressive leftist values in all things, except when they 
drove down the highway to the valley and got into the magical world of computing where somehow they could fantasize that politics didn't exist or they could dream that, you know, everything would be made better through, um, uh, Columbia uses the word, uh, the phrase technological fatalism, which I found very poignant because I often feel fatalistic as I'm sitting in front of this fucking box, like, oh, here I am. This is what it is. I don't know how it works. And, uh, it's controlling so many parts of me. Um, so yeah, he also brings up the idea of cyber libertarianism being kind of at the, at the, at the heart of some of the developments that come out of the seventies and eighties. He, he says, talks a lot about how as, uh, just a literature student and, and professor, he was very aware of, you know, the, the kind of language that came out of, far-right uh, ideologues regarding banking and monetary systems going back to the 50s and 60s, you know, uh, things like the, the John Birch Society. And he said he was really shocked when he started seeing this language pop up in, you know, early versions, early issues of Wired magazine or places like, as you were referring to, um, Derek, the, the, um, the Whole Earth catalog. Um, so I'll just say a little bit because it's so good uh, about... Um, uh, the Californian ideology. The, the writers are Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron. Um, uh, I've got a couple of quotes here. It, it, uh, their first graph ends with, at such moments of profound social change, anyone who can offer a simple explanation of what is happening will be listened to with great interest. Um, at this crucial juncture, a loose alliance of writers, hackers, capitalists, and artists from the West Coast of the United States have succeeded in defining a heterogeneous orthodoxy for the coming information age, the Californian ideology. And then it's defined as this new faith has emerged from a bizarre fusion of the cultural bohemianism of San Francisco with the high-tech industries of Silicon Valley. Promoted in magazines, books, TV programs, websites, news groups, and net conferences, the Californian ideology promiscuously combines the freewheeling spirit of the hippies and the entrepreneurial zeal of the yuppies. I think there's references in a couple of podcasts that I heard Barbara on about uh, Steve Jobs' tour through you know, India seeking enlightenment and so on, and then winding up back in the valley. Um, one of the things that I found really super helpful was uh, their analysis of how the technology and its developments through the 70s, 80s, and the 90s where they're, they're, they're doing their work um, allowed people who were otherwise or maybe even foundationally progressive in their values to say, um, almost to take their, their eye off the ball, um, that, that, for instance, they write, by championing, champion, championing this seemingly admirable ideal of technological freedom, uh, these techno-boosters are at the same time reproducing some of the most atavistic features of American society, especially those derived from the bitter legacy of slavery because their utopian vision of California depends upon a willful blindness towards the other, much less positive features of life on the West Coast, racism, poverty, environmental degradation. Ironically, in the not-too-distant past, the intellectuals and artists of the Bay Area were passionately concerned about these issues. Um, and then I think maybe the last thing that I wanted to point out is that 
I think in this um, amazing effort for 1995, which is kind of getting, you know, recycled, as I understand it, every five years or so as people have some kind of crisis moment around the meaning of technology. Um, and they say, like Barbrook in, in one interview, I heard him say that uh, this was like just repudiated by uh, most American technologists when it was when it was printed. Uh, but then they were invited back at some point to some, I don't know, conference in California where they were welcomed as sort of subtle prophets of the of the future. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that they one of the things that they really nail down is how uh, the technology development also intersects with the emergence of more indi individualized labor and gig work economy. So uh, they're talking about how uh, there's a need with all you know, technology sectors for creatives to emerge and do highly individualized work. So just quoting from the essay, they say, although companies in these sectors can mechanize and subcontract much of their labor needs, they remain dependent on key people who can research and create original products from software programs and computer chips to books and TV programs. And along with some high-tech entrepreneurs, these digital artisans from form the so-called virtual class. The techno-intelligentsia of cognitive scientists, engineers, computer scientists, video game developers, and all the other communication specialists. And unable to subject them to the discipline of the assembly line or replace them by machines, managers have organized skilled workers through fixed-term contracts. They become the labor aristocracy, uh, or like the labor aristocracy of the last century, core personnel in the media, computing and telecoms industries experience the rewards and the insecurities of the marketplace. And so on the one hand, these digital artisans not only tend to be well-paid, but they also have considerable autonomy over their pace of work and their place of employment. And as a result, the cultural divide between the hippie and the organization man has now become rather fuzzy. Yet on the other hand, these skill workers are tied by the terms of their contracts and have no guaranteed of continued employment. Lacking the free time of the hippies, work itself has become, this is, this is so perfect. Work itself has become the main route to self-fulfillment for much of the virtual class. And oh my gosh, like how prescient that is of, uh, you know, contemporary economies and, and, and the precariat as well, which they don't coin as that term, but they might as well. Um, so anyway, we'll link to the essay and, uh, and, and, uh, we'll appreciate all of your listener feedback on, uh, whether or not you understand better and are ready to invest in, uh, conspirituality pod coin. <laughs> There's points that you've raised that are so, I think, interesting and important in terms of, uh, Claim, claiming to, technology claiming to be apolitical or, or populist movements claiming to be apolitical. And, and the, one of the things I linked to in the show notes that I referenced earlier was this five, five star movement in Italy. And hmm. how, you know, it's, it started off in, in, I think 2013, claiming to be neither right nor left and actually having a fair amount of, of socialist sympathies and, and being sort of more progressive in terms of social, social issues as we identify them in the United States. And over time, they've morphed into this more sort of 
that they've morphed into having alliances with fascist figures. And a lot of it has to do with wanting to decentralize government altogether, get rid of parliament altogether, have everything be direct democracy through the internet. And they call their, their platform that they use for this Rousseau. Oh, wow. Yeah. The noble, isn't that yeah, the noble savage using the internet. Yeah. Uh huh. And actually that article is in wired oddly. Dur- enough. So <laughs> what, really direct good. democracy through the internet. Are yep. they high? Yep. Are they completely meaning, high? Meaning no middleman, right? Meaning eventually we get rid of people. Politics should not be a career is one of their platform statements. Well, I, I, okay. I can, I can empathize with the, with a, with a sentiment there, uh, but yeah. um, what's, what's the benchmark for expertise and public policy like like I mean, people have to do things. It, it, direct democracy means uh, everyone everyone who can vote on every different thing gets to have a say, right? And so it's a popularity contest wh- where you are tr- eliminating some of the checks and balances that come from some kind of expertise. Yeah, I would love to have a vaccine distribution actually happen with no middleman just come directly yeah. out of my fucking computer <laughs> <laughs> and be and be and the vaccines be like distributed amongst no and decentralized. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can just you can just choose if you want vaccine or ivermectin. You just click. Well, ex- exactly. <laughs> you just choose, and then there's another button where the the soylent green pours out of the bottom of the thing, and, and you, you can track how many people have d- done which choice and how much they like it just by clicking a button, and then there you go. Can we talk Amazing. about your use of the word "node" right there, Matthew? <laughs> yes, please. Did I get it wrong? Okay. So I understand that Adam Curtis, uh, the British documentarian, made a series called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. Yeah. And I haven't watched it yet, but I will because he's awesome. Uh, but I remembered the title from the Richard Brodigan poem from 1967. Brodigan is an incredible writer, incredibly tragic and ambivalent figure as well. He died of suicide. Uh after a lifetime of, uh, you know, pain and causing pain to others. And he left some incredible things behind, including this poem. Uh, and I hope that uh, our guest appreciates it. Um, it's a great interview, Derek, and I hope our listeners uh, enjoy it. Okay, so all watched over by machines of loving grace. I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think, right now please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think, it has to be, of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters and all watched over by machines of loving grace. David Morris is the chief insights columnist at Coindesk, which is the premier publication covering cryptocurrency and blockchain. I've actually been a reader for years, so when David and I connected on Twitter, I knew he'd have plenty of insights to share, which, as you'll hear, he did. David was previously a reporter at Fortune and has bylines at The Atlantic and Slate, among others. He's also authored two nonfiction books, Bitcoin is Magic, 
Internet Money, Mimetic Warfare, and the End of Mere Reality, which he calls, quote, a psychedelic trip through continental philosophy, witchcraft, the history of propaganda, and the dark rituals of the blockchain, end quote. He also has another equally fascinatingly named book, Blown Horizons, Incidental Notes on Psychedelic Noise, Abstract Rap, and other music that will end your mind. (laughs) Unfortunately, we didn't talk about music, and I'm sure we could have had a great conversation about that and psychedelics. But as you'll hear, we start off with some blockchain basics to fill in the holes that we've missed so far in this episode. And then David and I get to discussing cults and charismatic figures at the intersection of wellness and cryptocurrency. David, thank you for taking time out to uh, explain blockchain and cryptocurrency to conspirituality fans. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Derek. Um, I'm uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the show, so it's great to be here. As I mentioned offline, we have gotten requests to cover crypto for many months now, and there are a number of wellness influencers who seem to be curious or diving into that world, which we'll get to. But the reality is... As I said, I worked in blockchain for two years. You are really in that space at Coindesk. And it would be great just to give an overview, first of all, of what blockchain is and what cryptocurrency is, because in general, people are interested and they see it as a stock and something you can make money in quickly. But I don't think a lot of people really understand the origins and how it's evolved and what it was originally serviced to do. So I'd love to hear a, a 101 from you to start. Yeah. And, and it's very important for people who are new to this to, to get kind of a basic grounding because they're, you know, and, and we'll talk about this in more depth, but um, they're was a very, I think, clear, simple um, rationale for the technology to be used in certain settings. And those have been, you know, wildly successful with, when you talk about like Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum specifically. And um, that has led to a lot of people trying to use, you know, and now it's a thing that has been going on for many years, but using the idea of blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency technology to sell applications where it's really not fit to purpose um, and, and using that to invite or to, to draw in investment money um, that really is kind of doomed to go nowhere. So to start from the very beginning, um, you know, the problem that Bitcoin set out to solve as a project is this idea that in a digital age, you need to have some form of electronic cash. That is a financial instrument that you can send over the internet, um, but that doesn't require a central administrator. The problem with a central administrator, so for example, if you use PayPal or something like that, um, we've seen a lot of cases in recent months especially, um, but really for a long time now of those sorts of systems um, censoring some transactions in particular. So you have, you know, whether it's um, sex workers or, you know, other legitimate but maybe borderline businesses um, that can get 
denied access to payment systems that are basically required in this day and age for somebody to have a viable business. So when you take something like Bitcoin, the reason it is valuable and has a has a social utility is because and you know we can get into the technology of it as much as you want or don't want, but because it's set up in a way there is no um, you know central authority, there is no person that the government, for example, can go to to apply pressure to stop certain kinds of payments. That is the the utility of that system is that it allows anybody to transact. Anywhere you have an internet connection, you can send and receive Bitcoin. Um, on Ethereum, you can do other more complicated things, but similarly, it's uncensorable. Um, so that's the, that's the key thing. Um, I think really when you boil down to it is are you dealing with an application where, A, there's finance involved because for reasons that we can get into, the financial element is sort of central to how these systems work? And B, do you need it to be uncensorable? Do you need it to be something that, um, you know, bypasses authority to get something done? Um, and so any anytime you look at something that advertises itself as blockchain or something like that, Ask yourself whether, you know, that's a necessary part of the setup, whether you actually gain anything uh, from making this a blockchain thing. Because most of the time when you, you know, see some random thing advertised as a blockchain system, there's actually not much point to it being on the blockchain. Um, and it's just a marketing thing. So um, that's, I think, the the starting point for our discussion. I do want to talk a little about the tech. I, one of the reasons I became bullish on crypto early, or not as early as some people, but a few years ago, was because of the security protocols. So beyond a 51% attack, which is probably not going to happen with at least the major players, can you talk a little bit about why the verification process on blockchain is much better than having a password with Bank of America, for example? Yeah, I mean, the security thing is is very interesting. I think that we're still pretty far from understanding the full potential of it, um, because the way that a blockchain works, the reason it's uncensorable is because you um, have all of these, they're called miners, although that's a, it's a kind of unfortunate and misleading term. But you have people who maintain nodes of the network and they are rewarded financially by the system for doing that work. Um, and they each maintain a copy of the ledger that tracks transactions on the system, whether you're talking about Bitcoin or, or most other um, cryptocurrencies. And because there are all these copies out there, um, it's effectively impossible, except under some very, you know, fringe situations for somebody to go in and change those records. Um, and, you know, you, there are certainly um, examples in the way we've got the Internet set up now of why this is an advantage. Um, you have uh, people who are, you know, when you look at a traditional system or an existing system, I guess, um, there's all kinds of ways to compromise that data. Um, and it's not just about, you know, a hacker going in from the outside and, um, and taking something or changing something. It's also, again, about the administrators of the system itself having the ability to uh, manipulate the data. And, um, you know, I think that you can sort of start to see why there are it's not a mainstream problem. It's not something where, you know, we need to transition the entire system to, to cryptocurrency. Um, but there are some specific cases where that solidity, that like 
uh, immutability is the term that we use most of the time, that this is a thing that's not going to change. You can't mess with it. Um, and, and that's the security. I, you do have to be careful because people will start talking about um, different definitions of security, particularly when you start talking about data security, for example. Anytime somebody wants to start talking about putting data on a blockchain and that's going to be secure, that's not really how it works. Um, you can, I mean, a blockchain kind of for, for technical reasons is usually very transparent. So when you park data on it, it's very hard to put that on a blockchain in a way that is secure, but still maintains the advantages of the blockchain. It's kind of like building things on top of other things that don't make sense. So when you talk about security on the blockchain, you do have to be careful. Um, it, it's a very specific definition of security. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, we're going to talk maybe about BitClout. And that, I think, is one of the cases where these different definitions of security become a little bit problematic when you start using them interchangeably. One of my favorite use cases when I was working in blockchain was the uh, possibility of putting medical records on blockchain. And you can argue that you can do that in a lot of a variety of ways that don't need blockchain. But one of my biggest issues having had a lot of medical procedures in my life is how hard it is every time I change insurance companies and doctors just to access my records, for example. But you make a very good point, which is that that data can then become available more broadly. So I'd love to hear what you think the best use cases for blockchain are. Yeah, well, I mean, very quickly, I think that there is some potential for the, the medical records thing, um, basically because of what you're talking about, that you want a unified system. And that has been appealing to people over the years. People have tried to to do it, but um, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done in figuring out how you balance that unified system with, yeah, having the right levels of control over data. Um, but to your question, I mean, I, I think that um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all in on, on this stuff. Uh, I believe it's transformative. I believe it's um, got a huge potential, but I am you know, somewhat conservative, I think, relative to other people in terms of what I think the applications are. And I think that the applications for now that we know work and that I think have huge potential are financial. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into that um, and, and why that is. But basically, you know, money is inherent to the way these distributed systems work. The money that's built in the systems is used as a reward for those maintaining the systems. And that's how the decentralization works. And that's how the uncensorability works. So it's very hard to divorce the financial aspect from how these things work, which is, by the way, why you, um, you know, when you hear people talking about like, I'm not into Bitcoin, but I'm into blockchain, that that's a logical, that's, that's it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. Um, there, there is no there there when you're talking to people like that. So um, for examples of really compelling use cases, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of experimentation and frankly, a lot of fraud in all of these. Um, but when you look at something uh, that's called decentralized finance or DeFi, it runs primarily on a system called Ethereum, and it allows you to use um, automated systems to send and receive loans and other kind of relatively complex financial transactions. Um, using cryptocurrency and the automated nature of these things is really interesting. Um, theoretically, this is you know starting to happen in a very small way, but theoretically, you could, for example, uh, take out a car loan on the blockchain, um, and there are you know things that can happen in ways that may, might reduce some of the uh, you know labor involved in doing that through a traditional bank. 
Um, there, there's some really interesting possibilities there. But very broadly, if you're trying to just be very conservative about how you define these things, any blockchain application that doesn't have um, some pretty inherent financial element, I, I, I look at very hard. Um, if it's not set up to do something financial, there's an extra added risk that somebody is kind of selling you uh, a fantasy that's not actually going to work out. One of the use cases we were bullish on when I was there was voting. And there was a lot of problems. We actually did do a board of a, a directors voting on blockchain uh, for our members at that time. Uh, but that's a very small use case. But that is something that has been talked about, especially right now with voting being in the news every day. Uh, there is no financial incentive uh, on the face of it there, though. But would you see that as a use case that could be uh, realized in the future? Well, again, I think it's an interesting concept. And, you know, if I, if I try to do it justice, I think the idea is that you have a permanent record of votes that can't be manipulated and therefore that makes it more uh, trustworthy. Um, but again, there are problems in terms of the data structure. Um, I, I don't think it's an insoluble problem and there might be some value to be had there. Um, but so far, the experiments that we've seen have been really uncompelling because you end up with things like, um, you know, permanent records publicly viewable of how people voted, which is not how you want a system to work. Um, and, and so, you know, again, I think that um, when you look at these second order cases that are not strictly financial, it, a lot really comes down to the, the very nitty gritty details of how you design the system. And, um, you know, it's it, it ultimately turns into kind of a problem for the investment structure of these systems because it's very easy in cryptocurrency as we've seen over the and, and blockchain stuff as we've seen over the last few years to sort of throw out a big idea like blockchain voting or a blockchain social network and those are like buzzwords that people get really excited about um, but they don't necessarily when you're a member of of sort of the general public um, you have to you know, have a lot of insight into incentive design, into data structures, into, you know, you know, blockchain technology that's hard to understand in itself to be able to evaluate whether a specific application actually is going to work. Um, and, and so uh, that's how you end up with companies that have a lot of investment on a very thin idea that winds up being executed in a way that just doesn't make any sense because of the, you know, structure behind it. Um, so, the, you know, it's just to say that, like, the voting thing, kind of interesting, really matters how you execute it, and therefore there can be big disconnects between, like, interesting high-level idea and a system that doesn't actually work all that well a lot of the time, at least on the first couple tries. So, again, when you're thinking about um, getting involved in these things, just to highlight that there's a lot of nuance, like, just the fact that somebody is going to put a system on the blockchain doesn't mean it's going to add any value. Well, I, I do want to get into the wellness aspect, but we were talking about finance. And I think the origin story of Bitcoin is still, you know, shrouded in mystery with Satoshi. But some people have speculated that it comes from the anarchist movements in the late 80s, early 90s, from the very early internet days. Uh, and the whole concept was to take down the financial system. But it seems now that the financial system is a main driver behind crypto. Alibaba has the most blockchain patents right now. MasterCard, IBM, and Bank of America also have a lot of blockchain patents. So you see that the very targets of 
what the original intention of blockchain was for, people are now uh, getting involved in that. How much of that how much decentralization do you think is possible if we're going to move into an area of private blockchains of the Chinese Communist Party doing a digital currency on a private blockchain? Uh, is there room for both private and public blockchains? The, the, the history is, is interesting. And to, to make a slight distinction, you know, we don't know who uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, is specifically. And I do want to talk more about that because it really speaks to this ethos of like, you know, the entire point is you don't want a leader. Um, and, and that is an important idea that is unfortunately a little bit eroded these days. Um, but the actual, you know, it's pretty well documented, the, the inputs into the ideas behind Bitcoin. And um, I highly recommend for people who really want to dive into this, a book called Digital Cash by Finn Brunton, B-R-U-N-T-O-N. He gives a history of the, um, you know, we now maybe refer to them as crypto anarchists. Um, but there is, as you said, a long legacy of people um, starting in the late 80s, but really intensifying into the 90s. And, and of course, um, this all leads up to the 2008-2009 invention and deployment of Bitcoin, where, yeah, you're trying to uh, create a, an alternative to the um, traditional financial system that basically mimics what people thought the early Internet was going to be, which is just everybody can publish everything. It's a complete free for all, um, no, no rules. And that does still exist um, today for sure. And I can get into it. But for technological reasons, it, again, is pretty much impossible to shut down Bitcoin or any other major blockchain network that is actually uh, robust and and has users. Um, the entry of big corporations into all of this, I would say two things about. First is that um, a, a lot of it happened you know, a couple of years ago when there was a lot more, I think even a lot more than there is now, belief that long-term this blockchain technology could be a big deal, that it could apply to everything. So when you look at things like IBM's blockchain project, they, for a couple of years there, spent a lot of money, hired a lot of people, kind of ultimately realized that there wasn't a whole lot that they could benefit from. Um, and, and IBM has since scaled back its blockchain operations a lot. Um, a lot of the time you'll have big corporations kind of, again, not too much different from retail scam investments saying, we're going to do this thing on the blockchain um, and they'll get a little maybe stock bump or something like that. Um, but it doesn't really amount to much. The, the actual corporate blockchain applications are, are pretty thin on the ground. Um, I mean, who knows what the patents will wind up being worth long term. But ultimately, you know, there's just not a lot that. I think a, a major corporation has to gain from this because the entire point is nobody's in charge, which means um, it's very hard to get profits to flow to a central person or entity. And if you do get profits flowing to a central person or entity, you're then legally liable for the stuff that's happening on that network, which is what you don't want in the first place. Um, and, and so there are some pretty serious boundaries to what a, a big organization can do uh, with the technology. And the, and the fact that they're, you know, getting into it is, I think, substantially about, like, we want some hype. We want to look cool. You mentioned scam investments, and obviously there's been a ton of those. Uh, t talk briefly as we transition into the, the wellness space about how companies 
do an ICO and then make a ton of money and then just disappear. So the, the basic thing um, that is behind all of it is this is largely a product of, well, I mean, it could happen using other technologies, but a lot of it has happened on the Ethereum network where they have a mechanism called ERC-20, which uh, basically allows you to mint your own cryptocurrency without actually um, building your own network. And for a, a couple of years in 2017, 2018, a lot of people were doing these initial coin offerings where essentially the argument was, we have created a new cryptocurrency, we're going to use it for X, Y, and Z applications. And then just like Ethereum and Bitcoin, it's going to become worth a million times what it is today. Um, and because it was so easy and is still so easy to create these coins, um, people will basically, um, print a bunch of them, give it a flashy name, write up a, what's known as a white paper about their ideas of what they're going to do. Um, and often these white papers can be very superficial. Um, and then most of the time, or, or at least very often, They'll um, pay either people who are influential within the space or more recently, uh, people who are just famous in general, pay them to talk about the coin um, and then they'll get people to buy it. And usually, um, not usually, but when these are bad actors, um, they'll get people to, you know, whether you're paying with Ethereum or Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency that has much more durable value, um, they'll just, you know, get people to buy their coin on the basis of an idea that they've laid out roughly in a white paper and isn't usually all that viable. Um, and then they'll take people's Bitcoin and Ethereum um, and they'll either disappear sometimes or um, they'll just continue sort of working on the project as the, the price of their coin relative to real cryptocurrencies declines. And then eventually they can just go, oh, well, it didn't work out. Uh, sorry, we'll keep your money. Um, and, and so uh, that's the basic way that, that these investment schemes work. And the important thing to point out is that this is different from uh, like a stock market because um, there's basically no barrier to retail investors just buying these things on the Internet. Um, and so there's fewer layers of due diligence being done, for example, by the investment banks that would screen an initial public offering of a stock and give you maybe some insight into what's going on, like what's the actual revenue, who are the people behind this, for example. None of those standards are in force for these initial coin offerings. Um, they're, they're now totally and clearly illegal in uh, the United States and other uh, regulated environments. So, um, you know, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned to me when we first started talking that you also have an interest in MLMs and cults, which are obviously things we cover often on this yeah. podcast. What is the crossover that you've noticed between an MLM uh, or maybe even a cult with cryptocurrency world? At the risk of overstating it, at, in, in its very worst cases, Cryptocurrency is the perfect way to monetize the, the psychological dynamics behind an MLM or a cult. Um, and, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about, I think, um, the uh, perhaps the, the most developed version of this that I've seen so far, which is called BitCloud. Um, and that's true because there's an adoption curve. And in MLMs, it's, it's really close. 
um, the parallel to cults is a little bit more more distant, but um, you know, MLMs, right? Like the promise is you get on the ground floor, all of these people under you are going to be your downline. They're going to be generating revenue that you get. The version for cryptocurrency is a little bit different, but still kind of spiritually similar, which is, um, you know, if you buy this token right now and then other people come in later, they're going to want it at a higher price. And there are, you know, there are some legitimate arguments behind that. In some cases, these are real systems that actually have demand. Again, mostly they're things that have to do with finance. But the element of that that really becomes like an MLM or a cult is that once people have this financial stake in a network, they then become advocates for it. And they have every motivation to do that. Um, And, you know, to the exclusion of considering, you know, maybe there are some problems with it. And so they just become, you know, relentless shills is the is the term that we use um or you know i don't know what the equivalent would be in in a cult but you know recruiters um and uh and so you have now in addition to the same stuff that comes with an mlm or a cult which is the sense of belonging this idea that you maybe have somebody who can give you some guidance in your life you now have a financial incentive to advocate for the ideas behind the network um, so, you know, that's where um, some of the, frankly, worrisome and scary parts of cryptocurrency come in for sure. Um, they are, uh, you know, it's it's a monetization of collective activity in a, in a way that can produce some real um, worrying behavior, I think it's fair to say. I noticed last week that a man named Shaman Durek uh, has a BitCloud account. Last night when I was researching for our talk, I saw that Goop has a blockchain and crypto 101 explainer on their mm-hmm. website, which is interesting. And then just this morning, you you told me that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has a BitCloud account now. So can you talk to me about uh, more in depth about what BitCloud is? Yeah. So um, this this might take a little bit of explaining, but BitCloud is a is a very controversial attempt to build a social network um, that is in some you know frankly fairly misguided ways based on a blockchain. Um, And the way they've done this is um, you almost have to express some admiration for how nakedly they are manipulating people to get them to participate in this. What they did was they set up, um, they basically at the beginning of the project, which launched at the beginning of the year, more or less, they scraped the Twitter data for very popular people. Well, I'll say this and then I'll backtrack a little bit. What they did was they set up uh, profiles for very popular people. I haven't checked to see whether I have one. Probably not. I'm not that influential. Um, But they set up these profiles. They actually scraped the data from Twitter, which is illegal. They took people's profile pictures um, and, uh, you know, profiles and and put them on their own website, which which, it's illegal. Um, And... But then what they did, and this is, you know, it's evil genius, and there's a lot of evil geniuses involved in crypto. What they did was they then assigned a monetary value to these profiles through a complicated system of buying and selling tokens. And they made it so that people, um, these influential people whose profile data they'd stolen from Twitter, could um, activate their accounts, claim these accounts that had already been created for them. And at that point, they get access to a pool of tokens that they can sell. Um, And the value of those tokens that has been generated by people 
uh, already on the platform can seem really large. You'll actually look at the website and see like, oh, my profile is worth $40,000. I should probably claim it and then sell those tokens and get that $40,000. It's very hard not to, not to be susceptible to that. Um, however, um, they've engineered it in some interesting ways. So, uh, for example, most people, if you want to claim that $40,000, uh, you have to buy a couple of tokens yourself, which can be several hundred dollars. Uh, you do that with Bitcoin and you send it directly to the site, which is a whole other uh, kettle of fish. And so they've created these incentives for people to get on the website. They've led with the most influential people and um, they have a token. It's BTCT or something like like it. It looks a little bit like Bitcoin, which is, again, another uh, sketchy part of the project. And those tokens can be bought and sold. They've created this incentive system to get influential people on the platform and create some hype. Um, my, my guess is they did not expect Gwyneth Paltrow to uh, buy her own token in order to activate her profile. My suspicion would be that they've worked directly with a lot of these influencers to make it free for them to activate their profiles, um, which you know benefits them because, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow has a BitCloud profile. Um, and people are going to get interested. Now, to backtrack on two things. One, just in general, this is the really sad part about how uh, cryptocurrency, not cryptocurrency, how blockchain systems often market themselves, which is by leading with influential people. We talked a little bit about John McAfee. Um, he was this like colorful guy um, who for a time was, was selling his influence to promote a lot of really bad and scam projects. Uh, and, and so it's just kind of a sad testament, I think, to the weaker side of human nature, which is that there's this big new thing that people are interested in. Um, it's specifically designed to avoid a leadership structure that makes people susceptible to charismatic influence, you know, um, and yet that's what people immediately flock to. Uh, so, you know, BitCloud, it's a sad testament to the weakness of human nature. A few important things to point out and um, a few reasons why I would, you know, be very cautious if you're thinking about getting involved in this. And one thing that is um, very concerning. Now, this is a uh, project that has made a lot of hay out of the involvement of some fairly big name investors um, with people like Anderson Horowitz, um, venture capitalists who have a strong track record in technology. And in some cases, that's a real endorsement. Unfortunately, in this case, I'm, I'm, I'm quite disappointed in the involvement of some of these entities because what you've really got is these are venture capitalists who uh, bought a bunch of tokens on this system that has uh, a kind of a short-term, very big alpha, uh, but not necessarily a long-term life. So a lot of these people bought in at, at very low prices and uh, there is a, uh, I'm actually going to pull him up right now, but uh, a, a reporter for the uh, website Prodos has been following the sales uh, of these tokens very closely. And a lot of them are already getting dumped. Um, his name is David Canellis. It's at D on uh, Twitter if you're interested in looking. But a lot of people um, who bought these early at, you know, I'm just making these numbers up, but they were able to buy tokens at like eight cents and now they're already able to sell them for a hundred dollars. So uh, the, the involvement of these people doesn't actually imply any faith in the long-term viability or legitimacy of this project. It's really just a short-term play. And the same goes for a lot of the influencers who have bought in. 
who have also just activated their accounts, sold the tokens that they rewarded as a basis of that, and then, you know, don't really have anything to do with it. Um, there's also, and this is, I think, a, an important thing for non-technical and non-financial people, um, is that you can really sometimes look at the signals that don't have anything to do with math or money and, and get a solid picture of what's going on, or at least some hint. Um, and, and one thing that people who are not familiar with the space won't pick up on is the guy who uh, founded this is pseudonymous. He, he uses a screen name. Some people don't think they know who he is, but um, it's not really confirmed. And the name he goes by is Diamond Hands. And that really says a lot that people are not going to pick up on unless they're really familiar with it. Um, Diamond Hands is a phrase that is used by uh, basically day traders and speculators um, increasingly. Unfortunately, it has some stuff to do with, with Bitcoin and long-term holding, but it's really more and more associated with people who are uh, speculators, money-focused. It doesn't convey a real commitment to ideals or uh, you know, philosophy or anything. Really, it leads with the idea that this is about money. Um, and a lot of the things about BitClout really suggest that that is the priority. Um, for one thing, until relatively recently, uh, you could buy BitClout with your Bitcoin, but you couldn't then turn around and sell the BitClout. There was no market for it. For you know, months and months, people were just sending Bitcoin to uh, this website that then displayed your BitClout balance, um, and there wasn't an actual market for it. And that's particularly concerning because when you look at, for example, the Elon Musk uh, market cap on BitClout, that's ex essentially fictional. Um, there's no clarity into how the prices are set for the uh, tokens associated with people's identity on this network. So as far as we know publicly, those numbers are just being made up. And so when you look at that website, people are going to get excited. They're going to say, oh, this guy's BitCloud is worth X amount of dollars. I'm going to buy some. Maybe there's some upside down the road. None of that seems to have really any grounding in, in market reality. Um, and, and in this way, it's really similar and frighteningly similar to uh, a project that people can look up called BitConnect. Um, BitConnect was another blockchain. It was a real cryptocurrency. It really existed, um, but there was no market for it. And the operators posted prices for the assets on their own website, even though there was no public market for it. Um, and it turned out to be a $4 billion fraud. People lost immense amount of monies. Lives were ruined. People involved are being sued now by the SEC. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying that that's what BitCloud is about, but they have set the system up in such a way that it very much resembles some sketchy prior projects. Um, I also, you know, by way of warning, and this is sounding like a lecture, but hopefully people find it useful. Um, I want to read something from uh, BitCloud's vision document. Um, this is a, a, a very high up key paragraph. The inspiration for BitCloud hinges on one key insight. If you can properly mix monetary speculation with social media, you not only end up with a novel product that creates innovative ways for creators to monetize, you also end up with a totally new business model that solves these problems and that isn't based on ads. Now, um, what I take away from this particular passage is that this is a system that wanted to build a social media platform that had market elements, and the market was the important part not fixing any actual problems with social media. Now, they do get into some of the ways that parts of the way BitCloud is set up can uh, do some interesting stuff for social media. You can have curated feeds that are off-site, and those are all important things. 
Um, but it really honestly saddens me that this is the way that these ideas are being brought to market in such a sort of clearly financially incentivized um, and frankly misleading um, way. And I, I just think it's something that nobody should be involved in if you're looking at long term. What you're saying is that the the perceived price of BitClout coin is tethered to the star of the person. I mean, if you go to the site now, Elon Musk is number one ranked and he hasn't claimed his profile. Right. I think the top person to claim, it seems like, is Balaji uh, that, that seems active on the site. And just so people know, it's really just in terms of social networking, it, it pretty much is like Twitter where people just post tweets and and mm-hmm. then it's their star that really matters. But you've also written about uh, celebrity crypto endorsements, which I kind of consider tied into this in terms of the different blockchains, different coins using people's star power to drive people, people's attention to them. Was that a fair assessment? Yeah. And, and um, it's a major red flag for sure. I mean, anytime you see somebody who's Tweeting about an obscure project, um, you should you should be be careful or or you know participating in it or anything, because um, we had a uh, a case a couple of weeks ago. Kim Kardashian uh, posted an Instagram story about something called Emacs, um, which uh, I personally believe to be a deceptive and ill-intended project, um, and it's probably the the biggest social media promotion of a cryptocurrency ever was was her story. Um, now, in her case, she had a little disclaimer. This is hashtag ad. So um, she was paid for that, and she acknowledged it, and that's legal protection for her. But uh, in that case, and in a lot of other cases, um, people will tweet about or talk about projects without that disclosure, but they actually have been paid. So there are many examples over the past five years ago of people, um, particularly celebrities, saying like, oh, I'm a big fan of this new crypto project. Uh, you should check it out. And no disclosure, no discussion of why they're tweeting about it. But it turns out they were paid by the project um, and it was an illegal promotion. So um, Floyd Mayweather, for example, got fined a total of about $615,000 for tweeting undisclosed promotional stuff about a project called Centra back in 2018. Um, and and it's, still, it's still ongoing today. Um, so anytime you see somebody who's an influencer who's trying to promote one of these projects, honestly, just stay away. Um, it, it's a negative. It's not a reason to be interested in this stuff. Um, occasionally, of course, somebody will be um, legitimately interested in something, but it's a very, very rare situation. T- tied into that, especially since the pandemic started, I can't tell you the number of people in my social media feeds who have been asking for crypto advice uh, to, to Facebook, which is just absurd uh, on its face, because when you have a, a lot of people who have no idea what it is, then talking about their anecdotes, it doesn't lead to anywhere good. Uh, so what advice though, you being someone who is working in this daily for somebody, let's say in the wellness space, since that's predominantly who listens to this podcast, who is genuinely interested in the functions and perhaps I don't want to say investing, just getting involved with crypto in any way like, what would you tell them as they try to wade through this sea of 
uh, deception and, uh, you know, paid endorsements and such? I think that, you know, the, the general advice for everything these days is to focus on media literacy. Be sure that you're getting your information from somewhere reputable. Um, and, you know, it's this is the, the, the problem of our era, right, which is that um, people who are new to something are inherently easy to deceive because they don't know what they don't know. And so the, the, the simplest advice I would give would, frankly, to be uh, read Coindesk, uh, read other, you know, specialist outlets that are really focused on this stuff and whose reputation hinges on getting it right. A um, couple of other sites that are good are Decrypt. Um, Decrypt is actually um, maybe a little bit on, it, it's accessible. It's like intended for the general public to a great extent. Um, and then uh, there's another site I like called The Block, which is more of a, a professional, a financial professionals outlet. But, you know, just read stuff from reputable outlets. Like there are a lot of bad crypto sites, um, a lot of sites that take payment for uh, publishing stories about sham projects. Um, so be very, very discriminating in the information that you consume. Um, trust nobody. Trust absolutely nobody because most people are trying – like statistically, most people are going to be trying to t sell you something. Um, and uh, I guess the final piece of advice would be you know, start with trying to understand Bitcoin. Try and learn um, you know, how mining works, how uh, hashing works, like really – Familiarize yourself with the basic technical concepts. And from there, that'll give you a better platform for figuring out whether something is a legitimate application, whether there's some like, you know, actual reason for this thing to exist. Um, and, uh, and, and that'll help you uh, make some smart decisions. So that's my general advice, really. But mostly be very cautious because most of it is a scam. <laughs> well, you work for Coindesk, but I will follow that up by saying that I've been reading Coindesk for years, well before we got in touch. And I will second that, that that is the number one source to turn to if you're interested in learning about blockchain and crypto. I do want to end on a bit of speculation and not about costs or anything like that. But during our talks, or one of the articles you've written is actually about Lena Khan um, being uh, in the Biden administration now, which a lot of corporations are probably not happy about because she is a big antitrust legislator. And uh, that's been a personal pet peeve of mine for actually many years, uh, particularly around antitrust around Ticketmaster, for example, because I was involved in some blockchain ticketing projects and seeing how Corporations consolidate power. Of course, Facebook has recently, uh, you know, was sued by the FTC in over 40 states and the federal judge threw out the lawsuit. Doesn't mean it's over, but, uh, you know, we're seeing movements to break up Amazon. Elizabeth Warren talks about that. So with Lena Khan's appointment, uh, you've written about this that, you know, it could potentially bode well for crypto. And I wonder if you see this as a sign that we can actually move toward a more decentralized and progressive way of doing business, at least in, in America, because other countries are arguably not faring so well on that front. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it, it definitely still remains to be seen the actual impacts, but at least philosophically, um, you know, the breakup of big tech monopolies would definitely create more opportunities 
for people trying to build, you know, I'll be blunt again, people trying to build the real version of what BitClout is pretending to be. Um, and, and one of the key things that Lena Khan is focused on and has been focused on her entire career is this idea that social media companies need to create data portability standards so that, for example, if you're a Facebook user, um, Khan and her allies believe that you should be able to hit a button, download your Facebook profile, and then go to another website and upload it that, you know, organizes the data in a different way, um, for example, or uses a different algorithm or just has a different community. Um, one of the sort of new arguments for this new generation of monopolies is that if you lock people into one system, um, that can be anti-competitive, even if you're not charging them for the service. Um, so, so that's one example. And, you know, I, I will circle back around to it. But one of the things that's so frustrating about BitCloud is because it is such a compromise. It's sort of a kabuki performance of some of these ideals. Um, and, and more generally, um, you know, this integration, for example, another antitrust issue is Amazon, right? Like they're, they have this vertical integration where they're able to use the data from um, their merchants to decide whether they're going to make competing products of their own, which is just wildly dangerous for our economy, our society, innovation, all these things. Um, and, you know, when I was talking about the, the difficulty of doing data on a blockchain, um, there are ways to handle it that are um, sort of novel and interesting. Um, one, just kind of picking an example out of a hat, but there are these things called ZK snarks that allow you to wrap data and control interactions with it in a way that is quite interesting. It's not necessarily an inherently blockchain thing, but it kind of comes out of that world and has been influenced by it. Um, and, you know, I'm spitballing here a little bit, but once you start breaking up these data monopolies, you can have things like um, an Amazon-like stack where different elements are actually owned and controlled by different companies, but their data can interact in productive ways that are still controlled without allowing the same kinds of abuse that you get when everything is siloed in one company the way Amazon is. I mean, for example, Amazon claims that there are, um, you know, walls between different units that monitor sales data and those that create products, but you can never trust that, right? And frankly, there's no reason to. It's probably not true. Um, and so once you have different companies doing these things, you know, whether it comes from uh, somebody breaking up Amazon or somebody just forcing Amazon to have interoperability with competitors, um, then you have opportunities for a lot of things, but some of them might be blockchain based. I'm definitely not saying that specifically she's opening up a space for blockchain stuff, but it will be on the menu.